0: Well, it's so good to see everybody here this morning, and uh, you know, I, I tell you, it is it is relieving, I guess, to stand up here and not have to say a word about a hurricane, and we're uh, just grateful to the Lord. However, as soon as I say that, let's continue to pray. You know, uh, our attention span uh, in these United States is kind of like some of my toddler grandkids. I mean, the next news cycle, we're on to the next thing, and we forget about the tragedies, but These are real people who continue to be hurting and uh, going without, and uh, I fear that once the spotlight is taken off, it's kind of like the lingering stuff that happened with Katrina. You know, these people still need to get on their feet and start all over again. So let's continue to pray for, uh, you know, the folks in Florida and in Texas, and who are, who are dealing with this? I, I have a particular burden for pastors. Pray for pastors as they try to minister to their own people and do all that they possibly can to bring hope and help and relief to them. Uh, let's not let's not forget about let's not forget about that. And by the way, if you're visiting with us, as Josh said, I'm just delighted that you are here. Glad that you stopped by to see us. And uh, uh, I am going to be back there in guest Central. My, my wife is here. She's the better part of this deal. And so you'll get the joy of meeting Karen and just the joy of enduring me. So, But uh, we'll be back there in Guest Central. We'd love to say, say hello to you. I want to share something with you. Um, some of you have heard this by now. I sent it out in a communication. we announced it before. Um, but we we have engaged the services of a group called the Malfers Group out of Dallas, Texas. And just to remind you that we are... Uh, it's a six-month process, and we meet probably every four to five weeks on a Friday night and Saturday morning. There's a group in our church. that's a cross-section of our church that's represented there. There's about 22, 23 folks on this leadership team there, and uh, we met last, we met Friday night and Saturday morning, and it was really a wonderful time of exchanging and sharing and Just to remind you, the reason why we've engaged this group is that, one, our church is 38 years old. God has used us in wonderful ways, and we've got a great future ahead of us, but we feel like we need to pull back a little bit, get a different set of eyes as we look at what we're doing, how we're doing what we're doing, what our mission and vision we have. The mission is clear. Uh, How can we be better aligned and leverage the resources that God has given to us? Because there is something more that he has for us to do. And so we want some outside set of eyes to help us. The Bible said in the Council of many, there is wisdom and so and reason I reason to share this with you is for you to continue to pray uh, this robust conversation and uh, there ain 't no warflowers on this committee, so uh, which is really exciting, but also to let you know that it's if you'd like to come and sit in and view what we 're doing, this kind of thing' is open to you and uh, um it will will get it on the website uh in terms of when the next dates are but continue to pray that God will move in a great way there's great opportunity for us here um and uh for what God wants to do in and through fellowship fellowship bible church one other thing i want to say is that we have a great great ministry partner in this side of town um Perimeter Church, Randy Pope was the pastor there. They are celebrating this weekend 40 years of ministry. And uh, Randy is an absolutely wonderful, wonderful man of God. That whole team over there at Perimeter and their leaders, they are just incredible. I actually spoke over there on Thursday evening. And uh, God's using them in a great, great way. The thing I love about Randy and I love about the ministry there at Perimeter is that they are kingdom-oriented. In fact, he was one of the first when I came up to be senior pastor here in 2005. Randy Pope as well as Brian Wright reached out, and they were so encouraging. And so if you know anybody at Perimeter or you know any folks over there, be sure to congratulate them. And, uh, you know, the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ is not like businesses. We're not fighting over market share. We're co- cooperating on the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Amen? Amen. And that's what we're really all about. So just praise the Lord for, for that. If you have a Bible or a device, uh, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. Maybe you don't have a Bible or a device, but you've memorized 1 Peter. You can throw your head back and close your eyes. Yeah, a lot of you have memorized it, haven't you? So <laughs> 1 Peter 1 Peter chapter 1. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, thank you so very much for what you're doing in our midst, and thank you for uh, just the blessing of knowing you. Thank you for communion, Lord. What a reminder of the ultimate motivation for all things, the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Father, we pray that your word would be clear to us. I ask that you will arrest our attention. Um. This message this week, Lord, and you know, the the subject matter next week, both have to do with holiness. And it's almost a forgotten emphasis in our preaching and teaching. So, Lord, I pray, God, that you will help us. Help us to listen to perhaps some direct and hard things that Peter unpacks in this passage. But more than anything else, Lord God, we pray that you will stir our hearts to want to hear and to embrace and to obey and to live do your work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We embarked on this series in the book of First Peter entitled uh, uh, Navigating Life's Challenges. The book of First Peter is all about suffering. And the first message I talked about just gave a little bit of a backdrop of the book. It's one of these wonderful books where really the reason for writing the book is right there in the first couple of verses. Uh, It's written to believers who have been scattered around out through through the five provinces of Rome and and they were under persecution. As I said earlier, that that uh, the Romans tolerated the Jews and they didn't come after the Jews and they didn't uh, for 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 obvious reasons. A lot of them were political in nature. They needed some alliances and allegiances with the Jews there in what is now known as Israel. Uh, so they wanted to placate them in their leadership. Not so with believers. Once this new thing called the church came about and these folks start converting to Christianity, this thing called the church, because it grew so fast, became a threat to the Roman Empire. They presented Jesus Christ as Lord and they didn't want to worship the emperor of Rome. And with that came persecution, aggressive persecution. And so they came after these believers uh, with a vengeance. And so they were uprooted from their families and from their locations and from all of that and scattered around these five provinces. And Peter is writing them to give them hope. To give them hope, to, 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 to give them a sense of, 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 of firmness and uh, assurance that, that, that suffering, yes, yes, it's a gift from God. It is, it is a privilege, but that God is with you. And he's helping them to overcome and to walk through all of this. And so the very first message we dealt with in chapter 1, uh, uh, beginning of verse 3 down through verse 12, it talked about our inheritance and, and uh, what that's all about and how our, our relationship with Christ is priceless and precious. And Peter reminded them of the foundation of what they have. And by the way, whenever we go through suffering, whenever we go through a hard time, you got to focus on what can never be taken from you. What is always the same. What cannot be rattled. What cannot be shaken. In so many words, Peter is saying, look, God is not up in heaven sipping maylocks over your predicament. He's not rattled. He's, he's got options. He knows what's going on. And not only that, you need to focus on that which is permanent in your life. And i say that to somebody here today. You're going through that. And, again, you need to be called back to that which is permanent. Now, interestingly enough... Interestingly enough, he moves from that discussion and he talks about holiness. And at first glance, when you know the occasion of the book, you say, well, why are you talking about holiness? These people are suffering. What's the relationship between holiness and suffering? In fact... I'm going to give two messages on holiness because it's a two-part thing. He actually, the the, the theme of holiness is picked up in chapter 1, verse 13, but it goes all the way over to chapter 2, verse 12. And we're just going to cover chapter 1 today. The title of the message is The Hope of Holiness. So why does he talk about holiness? Why does he talk about holiness? And I think the, 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 the answer is very, very obvious. And that is that pressure and suffering have a tendency to cause us to relax. Or to wander away from what really matters and what's really important to us. Sometimes suffering will breed discouragement. And you cave into your circumstances. You cave into what's around you. You can get to a place where, well, well, why me? Why is this happening to me? You know, I didn't do anything to deserve this. And if you're not careful, you can get very lazy. You create this defeatist mindset. And so Peter, Peter, Peter was concerned about this. Uh, let me back up and say some very direct essence things. And I, my tone has got to match the text here. This is a very sobering passage. Um, now I say it. Too many of us are more concerned about our personal freedom than we are about our personal holiness. And as you read this passage, you 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 back up and you think, you know, uh, too many of us are concerned about are too, too asking the wrong questions. We're asking questions like, how can I get what, what what can I what am I allowed to do as a believer? How close can I get to the edge? Uh, and too many of us are declaring our freedoms. Now, don't get me wrong, I, I want to I strike the balance here, but there is this kind of like false grace movement that spells grace as permission. And so, you know, we're, we're all about finding out, well, I can do this, I can do that, I can do this, I can do that, I can do this, I can do that, I can do this, I can do that. Mature people don't ask that question, though. It's not so much what I'm free to do, but the larger question that we've got to be concerned with How do I best represent the one that owns me? That's the question. It's not my freedoms. That's the question. That's not the question. The question is, how do I live consistently and how can my life best reflect the relationship that I have with God? And that's what Peter is talking about. And we're called to stay clean in a polluted world. And that's what he's under. He, he's sort of like underscoring here. Say, so, no, I know you're. I know you're away from you're away from Jerusalem. You're away from uh, the context and from the large church there. You've been scattered abroad. All kinds of things are breaking loose here. You're in unfamiliar territory. You're, you're new jobs, new home, new environment, and all this other kind of stuff. And your great tendency is to cave into your circumstances and your revi- environment and reflect the stuff that's around you. But I need to remind you that no matter where you're located, the calling is the same. Some of us need to hear that. that. No matter where you're located, the calling is still the same. No matter where you're located, the calling is still the same. We're called, no matter where we are, to be clean in a polluted world. And that's not optional. A lot of us guys have white shirts. It's sort of like... The foundation for a wardrobe, right? You got white shirts. So I had—I shouldn't confess this—but I, I, I had—I've had these white shirts, and so not long ago, I got some more white shirts. Well, you know what happens when you've had white shirts for a while—if you, you know, had them laundered and starched, you know, they hang up there, and uh, something happens to them. I didn't appreciate what happened to them until I got these new white shirts. And I got the new white shirts and hung them up in, the, in my closet and looked at the other. I said, oh, my gosh, I've been wearing, wearing dingy yellow shirts. I didn't realize that. I, that's what happens to our Christianity. When we're not careful about looking at our lives and looking at how we're living and looking at our choices and keeping our eyes on the standard of holiness, we get dingy. I, I, I want to say this here to us. And I'm pressing into stuff that we, you know, we've heard just the opposite. God does not exist to come and identify with where we are and change who he is in order to accommodate our reality. Did you and I just said? God does not come down, change who he is to accommodate our reality. There is some teaching on grace that would suggest that kind of um, dysfunctional relationship. That somehow or another, I am the center of my Christianity. And so where I am, uh, there's mercy and grace. And so I'll just redefine mercy and grace as obliterating the standards of God and the nature of God. And he comes down and identifies with where I am. Well, in a certain sense, he does identify with where we are in a sense of taking us to where we need to be, but he doesn't change who he is in identifying where we are. He doesn't change the standards of what holiness is all about in order to to identify with who we are. And that's what Peter is talking about here. Um, Peter has an interesting way of writing, uh, although it is somewhat sequential. The centerpiece of what Peter is saying here is not revealed or unmasked until verse 16, when he says, Be holy. As I am holy, quoting from Leviticus. And so this whole section is about holiness. And let me give you a very baseline definition of holiness. Uh, You can get very complicated about it. There's some theological nuances and this kind of thing. But from a practical transferable perspective, a baseline definition of holiness is simply this. Holiness is to surrender to the very life of God within us. That's what holiness is all about. It is to surrender to the very life of God that is living inside of us. Uh, Paul said it this way, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and do of his good pleasure. The emphasis is on the presence of God, so therefore you work out that salvation. And so holiness has to do with surrender to the very life of God within us. And, And so in this text, Peter is reminding us of both the standard of holiness and the power of holiness. The standard of holiness and the power of of holiness. Holiness should produce something in us. And here in verses 13 through 25, I think Peter spells out the four products of holiness or what holiness should produce in us. And I just want to walk through them. The very first thing Peter says that holiness should produce in us is urgency. 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 Again, the thesis is this. Holiness doesn't change. God doesn't change. The standard doesn't change. Purity doesn't change. God's not going to bend it. He's not going to change it. It doesn't change. So that's the standard. What should that standard produce in us? It should produce in us urgency. That is a sense of passion and a sense of movement and a get after it because I need to get to where God is. It should produce urgency. There are two sub points here. The first is this urgency focuses on a clear, focused thinking, clear, focused thinking. Look at verse uh, verse 13 says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice the line he says, prepare your minds for action. Um, there's a notation there if you're reading from the English Standard Version. Uh, in the original text, and I wish they would have translated this way, literally in the Greek text, it reads, gird up the loins of your mind. I actually prefer that better because it, it, it's more graphic. It's, it's an illustration that he's using. And I, and I guarantee you, all these readers that read this, yeah, they got that. You see, back during, the time of, uh, the, uh, during Peter's time, uh, people in that part of the world and they still do to this day. Many, uh, many of them do. They wear men wear these robes, robes, and they had these big belts on. Now, what Peter is saying is that look, 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 look. Just like if you're in a hurry, you've got to run, you got to walk up some stairs, you got to run down some stairs, you got to go get something. What they would do would take the the fringes of the skirt there, they would put it together and then stuff it inside of the big belt. And so what he's saying to the, to the readers is, look, 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 look. Check out how you're thinking. Pulling the loose ends of your mind. Holiness requires personal examination. What are you thinking about? How are you viewing things? What are you dwelling on? We all will ultimately act on what we're dwelling on up here. Eventually, our thoughts will tell the truth about us. So Peter's saying, look, 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 I know, I know you're suffering. I know you're under persecution and I know you want relief here. But as never before, you need to pull in, pull in the loose ends of your mind And in context, he said previously, you know, you're going someplace, you're going to heaven, pull in the loose ends of your mind. Can I just ask you how you're thinking? What's going on in your head? What thoughts are you dwelling on? What are we allowing to occupy our minds? What awful negative conclusions are we coming about? Uh, are we drawn about people? Are coming to about people? Is that lustful thinking? Peter understood the relationship between thoughts and behavior, thoughts and behavior, thoughts and behavior, thoughts and behavior. Thoughts and behavior. He said, "Look, you, you got to think right." Then he talks about the relationship between the future and your behavior. He talks about setting our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us through Christ. This relationship between hope and holiness. There's a relationship throughout the Bible. One of the classic passages is found over first John chapter three, verse two. He says, You know, we, we we're, we're gonna be changed, we're gonna see him, we're gonna we're gonna be like him when we see him. And then verse three, interesting verse, he says, Everyone that has this hope in himself purifies himself. Just as he's pure. Peter is saying, Your behavior is determined in relationship to the clarity of your vision about your future. Where are you going? If you're going there, then you need to act now like you're going over there. There's a relationship between hope and holiness. Um, when I was a campus crusade for Christ for those years, I traveled a great deal. And I remember those early years on all these uh, campus towns and things like that, that I'd be speaking in and, you know, the budget was tight. So sometimes I'd have to be gone a little bit longer than I would like to in order to make the trips pay for themselves. And, but when I traveled, you know, our kids were small. I had this picture in my briefcase and every, hotel or motel that I would go into in these college towns, the very first thing I would do would take the picture out and put it on the mirror. It was a picture of Karen and and our little kids at the time. And the reason why I did that was to remind myself who was waiting for me at home. And to remind myself that I'm one decision away from stupid. So when I'd walk out of that hotel room, I'd look at that picture. When I came back in at night, I'd look at that picture. These people are waiting for me at home. They love me. They trust me. So Crawford, you need to act in a trustworthy way. And I think that's what Peter's saying here. That's what holiness is all about. Look, you, 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 you need to think right. You also need to know that you're going to go see him and you're going to be like him. Somebody's waiting for you over there. Make sure that when you get there, you're not embarrassed when you arrive. Part of our problem is, is that we think that this is a payoff down here. We, we, we've lost our vision of heaven. I said this in the first message on Peter that, you know, some of this stuff is kind of like irrelevant. I, I, I really believe this in my gut. I, I believe that, you know, I can't put a number on it, but I, think, I believe the vast majority of Christians uh, do not believe viscerally in the literal existence of heaven. We act as if this is the payoff down here. But Peter is reminding us we're going to that place and it does exist. It says, obedient children, in verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. The expression obedient children, I think he's referring to, just like children tend to be easily influenced and shaped in a positive way. There should be a childlike nature. Our thoughts and our minds should be responsive to God. God. Be willing to let the spirit of God and the truth of God's word mold and shape our behavior in our responses as obedient children. So he says, look, you're here. You can't be passive about your holiness. You got to be urgent about this thing. The second part of this urgency has to do with God honoring living. Thus, he says here in verses 15 and 16, this is the point. He says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Peter doesn't allow for any wiggle room here. There's no parentheses here. There's no, oh, gradually let's kind of get there. But I think what Peter's doing here is that he's calling for decision. The word holy, literally, literally, the word holy comes from a Greek word, agias. It means literally to set apart. That's what the literal meaning of the word is, to set apart, to take this and put this over here for someone else's use. That's, that's the teaching of holiness throughout the Bible. You go and you get this and you pull it away from that context and you put it over here and you designate it for this use and this use only. So when the Bible talks about holiness, what it means is is that we are to be set apart for God's exclusive use and pleasure, period. To be holy means to be set apart exclusively, exclusively. For God's use and for his pleasure. There's no compartmentalization. Or if I would say it another way, um, to the follower of Christ, there's no such thing as the secular or the sacred. We don't bifurcate our Christianity. And I know practically speaking, many of us do. But in the Bible, Christianity was never meant to be bifurcated. Christianity was never meant to be segmented. Christianity was never meant to be divided. Christianity was never meant to be part of our lives. Our relationship with God was never meant to be over here, and then we have these other relationships over here. No, the relationship with God is everything. There is no sacred or secular to the believer, none whatsoever. I glorify God as I play golf, although you might not believe that when you see my game. But I glorify God when I play golf. I glorify God when I eat my dinner. I glorify God when I play with my grandkids. I glorify God. There there is no segmentation. There is no separation. And that is our problem. We think separation and segmentation. But when Peter says, no, we got to be holy in all things. And also, I think what he's hinting at here is that nature determines appetites and decisions. He's going to say in verse 17, I'll get to that in a second, he calls God Father. So in context here, what he's saying, be holy as God is holy. He's quoting from Leviticus chapter 11, verses 44 and 45. Be holy as God is holy. Now, this is, also, this is two things. This is, also, this is a command as well as an embedded promise. What do you mean by that? Well, first, the command is this. Look. You're to be holy, Crawford. Be holy. That is a statement of your identity. And so one is you need to decide to be who you are. This sounds crazy, but I got to tell you, a a lot of us who struggle with life-controlling sin, we struggle with strongholds in our lives, we struggle with these things in our lives, Sometimes and I'm not, and please, I'm not being, I'm not saying that, you know, addictions are not, they're, they're, they're real and these strongholds are real and this kind of thing. But some of us will never get victory. You know why we won't get victory? Because we've not decided. We've not made the decision that I am to be Holy. So we'll waste a lot of money on counselors and rehab and all these other things and these coping mechanisms and try to, uh, you know, um, uh, modify our behavior and do all of this stuff when we have to make, we have to make a fundamental decision. If this is who I am, I need to embrace who I am. God declared that I'm to be holy. And it's with that sense of declaration that my heart becomes more aggressive. In getting solutions. Moving toward resolving the issue. But this is also an embedded promise. When God says, be holy as I am holy. And in verse 17, he calls us his father. He says that he's, he's our father. Inherent in that is the ability to be holy. God never makes a command that he doesn't give us the ability to perform. If he is holy and we are in him, we have access to his power. So we can be holy. For he is holy. Our problem is, is that we're looking at what we can do to be holy. Holy rather than what God has done and what he's provided for us in order for us to be holy. So there is this statement to be obeyed and an embedded promise. It's what we need to decide to do. So quickly, there's also accountability. That's the second thing that takes place here that holiness produces. Peter says holiness, this vision of holiness should produce urgency. Don't be lazy about this. He says, get off the dime, man. Get it in gear. Don't be passive about this. You're tempted to excuse yourself. But he says, secondly, this, this holiness should produce in us a sense of accountability. Notice he verse 17, underscores the fact that we have his DNA. He says, and if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Uh-huh. He says, number one, we have his DNA. Children inherit the nature of their parents. And to be born again, to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ means that we have part of his nature in us. In fact, that's what Peter says over in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. He says, we are partakers of the divine nature. So the command that he gives to us, he's our dad. We've got his DNA living inside of us. There is power in us to do what he's called us to do. Yeah, I did a series on the Holy Spirit some time ago. The, the, the third person of the Trinity lives inside of us. We have the power we carry with us, his DNA, just like your children have your DNA. My children, grandchildren have my DNA in them. We have his DNA inside of us. He is there, but also he underscores that we answer to him as well. We answer to him as well. It is not just that we come to Jesus and all of a sudden all of our sins have been forgiven, past, present, and future. I believe that's, that's wonderful. But a believer is not free to do whatever they want to do. Well, I guess we can do that, but there is accountability. Notice the line that he says here, and I know this is sounding a little direct and harsh, but it's, it matches the text. He says, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. In context, he's talking to believers. And he says that believers are going to be judged. But this judgment does not have to do with our salvation. It has to do with our deeds. It has to do with our works. First Corinthians chapter 3. And I don't know where we got this from. I don't know where we got this from, that somehow or another, because I know Jesus Christ is Savior and Lord, and that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, no, there's not condemnation in the sense of our eternal salvation. We'll never be condemned there. But that does not mean that we can just do pretty Pretty much what we please to do, we can make any choices that we want to make, we can sleep around, we can lie, we can have negative attitudes, we can mistreat our husbands, mistreat our wives, we can be abusive in our language and this kind of thing, and and then we say, well, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, there's therefore now no condemnation, and I won't be held accountable. Seriously? That's not true. You heard me say this a thousand times, grace is not permission. That's not true. This, this text says that we're going to be held accountable. We're going to be held accountable. This also implies, and I, I, I started not to say this, but I, I just, I, I, just I, 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 I need to say this. And I say this not for sensationalism here. I'm not trying to be sensational, but I'm saying this to teach what I really believe the Bible teaches about habitual unrepentant sin in the life of a believer. There's this text of scripture that scares me to death every time I read it. It's found in 1 John chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. In this passage, John declares that there is sin unto death. There are various views of the text, but my view of the text is that sin unto death, the sin is in the present tense, has to do with habitual, unrepentant sin in the life of a believer. And the inference from the text is that sometimes, in some cases, Where there is this consistent unrepentant sin in the life of a believer, God, God himself, will cause their premature death. In my well over 45 years of ministry, I have seen this take place two or three times. I told this story here several years ago. Um, Karen and I knew this young couple, uh, believers, and found out that uh, the young man was having an affair. I met with him for breakfast. And I'll never forget this. This was bone-chilling to me. I sat across the table and... uh, He was skirting around some of the issues and this kind of thing and sort of like, you know, excusing his behavior and all of this. And I just stopped and said, look, look at me, man. You need to stop this and you need to stop it now. And he looked me square in the eye. I will never forget this. Even as I tell this now, I've told this story, I don't know how many times. He looked me square in the eye and he said to me, his eyes were just cold, said to me, Crawford, I'm not stopping. I'm not going to do it. And I remember the chills just going down my spine. It wasn't two weeks later. He was on a motorcycle going across the connector on I-20. Going faster than he needed to go. Went to go around this truck, clipped clipped the truck, hurled him off. And he smashed into this pole. And the only way that they could recognize his body was by his wedding band. Again, I say that not to be sensational, but also to underscore with us that God doesn't play with sin, He doesn't play with it in our lives. Yes, he is tender. Yes, he is gracious. Yes, he is merciful. Now, I could tell you stories, well, that hasn't happened to so many, I mean, with people gone on and just sin, 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 and nothing like that's happened. And I'm not saying it happens every time. But what Peter is saying here is anchored in the overall teaching of the New Testament. That God doesn't tolerate sinful behavior in the lives of his children. And this issue of holiness is not a hobby. It is what God requires of all of us. So, there's urgency, there's accountability, but thirdly, there's gratitude, and this is the ultimate motivation for holiness. This is the ultimate motivation for holiness. Um, Peter says here in chapter, I mean, verse 18 of chapter 1, the opening line, he says, knowing that you were ransomed from the fr- fruitful ways inherited from your forefathers. He, he, he pulls them back and he says, this is what we were. What were we? What were we? Well, we, 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 we? We need to remember that we were bankrupt, enslaved sinners who could not pay for our own freedom. Grace and mercy came and found us. Think about your own life. Think about where you were. <laughs> Holiness is a tribute to the grace and mercy that found us. We want to live a holy life because He ran us down. He came and got us. You remember the pitiful condition we were all in, how you laid awake at night, the guilt all around you? You remember that? Remember the sinful habits that grabbed a hold of you? Remember the brokenness in your life? Remember the people that you hurt? Remember the disappointments you had with yourself? Remember the addictions that you had? Remember how Jesus came in and freed you? Remember how clean you felt? Remember the tears of joy down your cheeks? Remember the new life that you got? Peter says, when we remember what we were, it should produce holiness in our lives. You see, he's not talking about some bootstrapping sanctification where you just kind of got it out and do it yourself. You know, legalism is nothing more than camouflage carnality. You know, that's all legalism is. I mean, it's, legalism is just pride wearing religious impress me clothes, That's all legalism is. Now, he's not talking about, he said, look, 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 look. I'm not talking about you playing games. But you living a life of holiness, which is a living sacrifice, expressing your gratitude for what what he's done, what we were and what he did. The second part of verse 18, this is remarkable to me, not with the precious things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The key word is in the opening line of verse 18. You are ransomed with the precious blood. You are ransomed with the precious blood. You are ransomed with the precious blood. That word ransom was used of of people going to the slave market and buying slaves and setting them free. We were all slaves of sin. Oh, yeah, we were. Now, y'all look nice today, but, you know, we were slaves of sin. We're all slaves of sin. It controlled us, and we were in a marketplace of life. We pretended to be free, but we were enslaved. Jesus died on the cross, paid for our sins, rose again on the third day, and went down to the marketplace where we were. And he said to the slave master, I want him, and I want her, and I want him, and I want her, and I want him, and I want her. Why do you want them? I paid for them. Set them free. That's what he's done for us. The point is, why wouldn't you want to live a holy life? Once again, out of gratitude. Out of gratitude. And by the way, this is what he planned. That's what verses 20 and 21 is all about. He planned it this way. He said, look at the line here in verse 20. He says, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you the sake of you. This is remarkable to me because it has a tad bit of a double entendre. Not only was he foreknown, you were foreknown. It's as if he says, before you were ever born, I planned the solution for your eternal destiny. In other words... Christ's death was an appointment, not an accident. Oh, what love. It was an appointment, not an accident. The payment of our sin was planned before the foundation of the world. And I think the point of all of this is that this should engender a tender heart a tender response to God. Notice the appeals in the passage. You know, we get hung up on the expression, be holy for I'm holy. Who could ever do that? Well, when you look at the technology, that, that's in a way, it's an impossibility. But we read the passage, you see what God has provided. He calls us father. So he's giving us the DNA and the power, access to the power to overcome the sin that's in our lives in order to reflect holiness. I'm not talking sinless perfection. But aggressive development and overcoming. Then he says, after all, just step back. Look at what he's provided for you. It's kind of like what the apostle Paul said. How, you know, God who spared not his own son, how, I mean, he's going to also freely give us all things. It's like a jeweler. You go and get a $5,000 diamond ring, and then you're going to haggle over the box to put it in. No. He's called us to be that, and he's empowered it. So we should be grateful. Our hearts should be tender. The greatest thing you can pray for your children, the people that you're discipling, and for yourself is that God would keep your heart tender. Keep it responsive. You ought to be afraid when you no longer feel guilty. Over your sin. Karen blessed my heart the other day. I came in the house and she told me one of our grandkids, without the prompting of their mother, one of our grandkids called and said on their own, Mimi, would you pray for me? Of course, she said, Well, sure, I'll pray for you, honey. What do you want me to pray for? And this grandchild of ours said, You pray for me because I lied to mommy today. She told me that my eyes filled with tears. Oh God, keep their heart tender. Is your heart tender? Is it tender? It's gotten to the point that we've learned to accommodate the crap and nonsense in our lives. No longer affects us. We can tell a lie, but just with a twinge of guilt. We can be rude and nasty to people and maybe feel a little uncomfortable. Have we forgotten the severe mercy of God? The final thing that, according to Peter, that holiness should produce in us, it should produce love. Love. Now, you know, this is, at first when you read the text, you go, where what, what does he end up on this love? Well, it's, it's amazing because he's saying that, that holiness is not just this way. Holiness is this way this this holiness that we pursue this this urgency this accountability this gratitude that is produced in us manifests itself in love in loving relationships it is communal it is demonstrated among the peoples of god it is pure and i'll just give two general descriptors here this is found in verses 22 through 25 in verses 22 through 23 he says this is a pure love again he's attaching it to holiness he says in verse 22, having purified your souls from your, for, for, by your obedience to the truth. Now, again, obedience to the truth is connected with the salvation that has been purchased by Christ's death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. So he says, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. You're free to love. Jesus said, By this should all men know that you're my, my disciples if you have love for one another. Paul himself said in a great text, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that the veracity of Christianity has manifested itself in love. And so here, Peter masterfully connects love with holiness. pure it's clean but he also says it's enduring well the term love is not used when he quotes Isaiah chapter 40 verses 6 through 8 6 verses 6 and 8 he does say that a purified holy life allows us to love purely and that it's enduring thus he says all flesh is like grass in all its glory, like the flower grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. This is enduring. You know, holiness is not produced solely through the force of our will. Notice I said solely. I'm almost done here, but let me let me just let me just let me just say something here, okay? There is a brand of sanctification or teaching about growth in the Christian life and holiness and this kind of thing that I find terribly misleading. And every so many years, it continues to raise its head. And here's what it says. It says, you just just yield. And that's how change takes place. Your will has nothing to do with it. It's your identity. You just yield to it. Well, the problem that I have with that happens to be the Bible. I mean, there's commands in the Bible. Peter just gave us a command to be holy. There are all assortments of commands everywhere you turn. So I don't know about you, look, I went to government schools, but if it's a command, it, it implies it's your will has to press into the command. Here's what I want to say here. Our will won't produce the power for change. But our will is the expression of our faith. And response to obedience and in response to obedience, as we respond, God releases his power for us to obey. So it's not self-reliance that we're talking about. But the way we become holy is through yieldedness to the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. Yes, I obey these commands, but I don't do them in my own strength. That's the point. That's the point. Yes, I, I, I intend to do this as an act of my will, but I don't do it in my own strength. I do it in the strength and the power of the Spirit of God. And he sets me, sets me free. It is produced by God's grace and the power of the Spirit of God. Let me tell you this quick story. Anybody here ever heard of the little animal called the ermine? Yeah, I had neither. Um, but I was just reading this past week There's, there's this little animal called an ermine. I was intrigued by this because it relates to this whole passage. Ermine is a little little animal that that actually lives uh, up in northern Europe and over into Asia, and uh, what it is known for is it's a beautiful, expensive fur, pure white fur, but it only grows that in the, in the wintertime. But the ermine has a little bit of a quirk. The quirk that it has is that this, the ermine is fastidious about keeping its fur white. I mean, it constantly cleanses itself. It's like always. So you know how hunters catch them? Actually, they catch them for the fur, but you know how hunters catch them? They don't trap them. What they do to catch them is that they find out where they live in rocks and holes in the ground and and what they will do is that they will smear the entrance entranceway with grime, dirt, this kind of thing. And then then they release the dogs. The dogs would chase the ermine, right? He would chase the ermine, and the ermine comes back home and sees that like, grime said, I ain't going in there. All the time I spend keeping this thing white, I'm not going inside there. So the ermine will stop, will not go in. I know, don't call animal rights people on me. You see, to the ermine, purity is more precious than life. And that's what Peter was saying to the exiles. How much do you value your purity? Purity. How much do you value your holiness? How important is it to you? What does it say about the God you serve, Crawford? Let's stand together. If you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus and you're here this morning. Jesus died that we all might be clean. Maybe you're feeling guilty today and there's stuff in your life. That you're not very proud of. But welcome to the club. We've all been there. But as I mentioned a few moments ago. Jesus has shown up. And he says, I've paid the price for you. You were born to have a relationship with me. and You were born to be set free. You were born to be clean. And all you have to do is say, Lord Jesus, I turn from my sin. And I trust you as my savior and Lord. You can't help yourself. He's done it. And as a pastor, I want to plead with those of us here who are believers, and we've been accommodating sin in our lives. And you know who you are. We know who we are. It's not funny. And that's not our heritage. We weren't born to live like that. We weren't born to live in compartments. There is a better way. There is forgiveness, there is freedom, there is hope. But that cannot be experienced until there is authentic, genuine repentance. Whatever it is, whatever business we've got to do with God, I want to encourage you. The people you affect, your own walk with God. It's too precious. It's too valuable. To keep procrastinating disobedience or to keep procrastinating obedience. Do business with the Lord. Confess it, come clean. You need somebody to come alongside of you and walk with you, help you with that. That's what many of the folks here in this church we're all about. But fellowship, let's get serious about holiness. I'm embarrassed because I don't preach enough about it. The Bible says far more about it than we preach about it. It says everything about who we are. If there's any burden on your heart, any issue that you'd like to be prayed for, or any situation that you're facing, perhaps not what we talked about today. There'll be elders and Stephen ministers and staff members up front who love to pray with you. Father, thank you for your goodness and Lord, thank you for this passage and thank you, O oh God, that you've called us to be holy, but you've empowered us to do it. And may we respond to you, Lord Jesus. Oh God, forgive us for accommodating those areas of weakness and sin that we sort of wink at. Lord, may our hearts not become hard, but keep them s- Soft and sensitive and responsive to you. Dismiss us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.